I feel the Spirit of God would have me minister the word to you this morning out of John's Gospel. So if you will take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1, we're going to focus primarily on the first five verses under the heading, God's Glory Revealed in Christmas. You know, in our post-Christian culture that is increasingly characterized by militant unbelief towards the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and all who belong to him, we have all the more reason to maintain our focus on our glorious Savior and coming King. And yet there is another attack that we experience, not so much one from the outside, but one from the inside, and that attack could be labeled apathy. It is easy for us as Christians to become apathetic. It's easy for our service to Christ to become mechanical, obligatory. It is easy for our worship to become routine and empty. It's easy for our study of Scripture to become academic and lifeless. And it's easy for our love for Christ to become cold and distant. And without realizing it, we can fall into the same trap as the first century believers in Ephesus. We can, as the Lord said in Revelation 2, leave our first love. He said, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And like perhaps no other time in the year, the Christmas season can be the most distracting and detaching season in that it moves us away from the person and the work of Christ. The very one whose, whose life and death and resurrection and promised return we celebrate. So I wish to direct our attention to a series of passages this Christmas season that will help us combat this tendency towards apathy as well as fight the satanic system in which we live that is constantly seeking to mock and mitigate the glory of Christ as well as the glory of the Father and the Son, our triune Godhead, each of which as we will understand, I hope better today, had a role to play in the Christmas story. So notice John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Let me read these first five verses to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, mind you, the primary emphasis of John's gospel is the deity of Christ. 
And he summarizes the purpose of his gospel in chapter 20 in verse 31. He says, these things have been written that you may, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. But the Apostle Paul also warns us in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 3, that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And one of Satan's primary and most effective strategies is to distort the person and the work of Christ, especially concerning his deity. One of the characteristics, in fact, of antichrists that John gives in 1 John 2 is their denial of the deity of Christ, the Son of God. In verse 22 of 1 John 2, we read, Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? In other words, a person that denies that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the second person of the triune Godhead, the Son of God, our Savior and coming King. Anyone who denies Christ is an antichrist. And all lies are alien, are alien to the truth. And John has in mind the great lie that Jesus is not who he claimed to be. And sadly, many people are that way today. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 11, with reference to uh, the great tribulation that's coming, we read that God shall send a strong delusion that they, referring to unbelievers, should believe the lie. Well, what is the lie? Primarily that Christ is not who he claimed to be. You see, if a man does not believe Jesus is God in human flesh, he is an antichrist. That is the acid test of a man's salvation. In 1 John 4, beginning in verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. And so, dear friends, salvation is based upon one's answer to this question. Was Jesus God in human flesh? In 2 John 7, we read, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. It's interesting, some of the ancient Gnostics believed that he was just a phantom. In fact, the branch of Gnosticism that was in Corinth that the Apostle Paul had to deal with said that Jesus was just a man and that the Christ spirit, whatever that is, the Christ spirit came on him and then left. You see, these were the kind of lies that John was combating in his epistles. Deceivers deny the incarnation and therefore the deity of Christ. And such denial is the basis, frankly, of liberalism to this very day, of modernism and all of the cults 
For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Christ was created billions of years ago as the angel, Archangel Michael. And it was through this created angel that all other things in the universe were created. Jesus is considered to them to be a mighty God, but he is not God Almighty like the Father. He is some kind of a lesser God, they will tell you. So Jesus is not to be worshipped like the Father. And after his crucifixion, they teach that Jesus was raised from the dead as an invisible spirit creature with no physical body. And they believe that Christ's spiritual and invisible second coming took place in 1914. And he has been ruling as king since then through the Watchtower Society. Mormons believe that the universe is governed by a head god and his council. They believe that God has goddess wives, that God is limited by a physical body, that there are many gods, and that Jesus was a created spirit brother of Lucifer and Adam. They deny the Trinity. They deny that Jesus, therefore, was the Christ or is the Christ, the eternal Son of God. They believe in millions of gods. They don't even know how many. And when Mormons die, couples that were baptized in the temple in Salt Lake who have been faithful Mormons get their own planet. Wow, what a deal. Where they can enjoy celestial sex forever and produce more gods. So when you see these guys riding around, you know, with their little bicycles and all coming to your doors, know that this is where they're coming from. They believe that the Bible had to be corrected. Mormonism, by the way, is rooted in in sexual deviancy. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young were into polygamy. And so the Bible had to be corrected by the writings of Joseph Smith and the pearl of great price, the doctrines and the covenants and so forth. Of course, Muslims believe that Allah alone is the one true deity, that he is neither mother nor father. Similarly, he has no sons or daughters. Uh, He is not uh, a trinity. He is not the God of the Old Testament. He is certainly not the God of Christianity. Allah, according to Islam, is the God of all humanity. And according to Islamic literature, Allah sent thousands of prophets, Jesus being one of them, but Muhammad is the greatest of them all. And I might add that there are many professing Christians that have gravely distorted understandings of who Jesus is. They make Jesus into a God of their own making, that his will is somehow subservient to their will, to man's will, that he exists to make us healthy and happy and prosperous and He can be manipulated to give us what we want, and and he continues to speak privately to certain people. Of course, this is just not the Christ of the Bible. All of these claims are false. These are doctrines inspired by demons, and there's hundreds of other religious systems like these. And so, this morning, and especially this Christmas season, and frankly, every time we come together, We want to make sure we are accurately defining who Jesus is so that we will worship him accurately and worship the triune Godhead accurately. And as we study this, even this morning, you want to ask yourself, is this how I view him? Is this my understanding? Is my understanding biblical? 
And is his incarnation what I celebrate during the Christmas season? Is this what I teach my children? We're going to look at these verses this morning under three categories. We're going to look at, first of all, the eternal glory of God the Son. Then, secondly, the eternal deity of God the Son. And finally, the eternal self-existence of God the Son. And I might add that seldom will you see any of these things symbolized even remotely in Christmas yard displays. I mean, anymore, you don't even see a nativity scene, right? I saw one the other day. They had this goofy elf guy that there's some movie he dressed up like an elf. They got a big thing of him out there next to Santa Claus. And you see Frosty the Snowman. And you see all of these other things. It's amazing how how the enemy has just eliminated the great truths of Christmas, of the incarnation of Christ. And most, again, most professing Christians do not understand many of these things. And therefore, they do not realize that at the very heart, the Christmas season should be an opportunity for us to celebrate the incarnation of Christ and thus give God all the more glory for who he is and what he has done and what he will do. You know, whenever I approach this text and others like it, I, I find myself getting lost in wonder. You know that feeling? You, you read something and all of a sudden you just kind of set back and, and your mind just begins to go in places that you get lost in. I've had the, the privilege over the course of my life to spend a lot of time in in the Rocky Mountains, from Alaska, all the western provinces of Canada, all the way down to New Mexico, everywhere in between. Most of it's been on top of a horse with a pack string of horses. And those of you that have been in the mountains know what it's like. Right, Peggy? You know what it's like. You look into those mountains and you are just absolutely overwhelmed with the magnitude of what God has created. You look at the rivers you look at the streams, you look at the wildlife, and, and you're just speechless. And at night, you look up when you're way up north, and you see the northern lights. It, you, just, you just don't know what to say. It is absolutely overwhelming. And I must say that when I come to this passage of Scripture, all of those things that I just described pale into absolute insignificance because all of those things merely reflect the person and the work of Christ, the glory of God. And through the eyes of faith, we can look beyond all that we see in the Christmas story, and we see something far more magnificent and glorious. Truly, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, Psalm 19.1 tells us, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. But my... When we really look at who Christ is and all that he has done, especially coming to earth in the incarnation, it is absolutely overwhelming. And this is what we see in John's prologue here to his gospel. We see a little glimpse of what existed before time. You realize God created time. He created space. Hard for us to fathom. I mean, it's not hard. It's impossible for us to fathom that. 
but also we see here in this text who existed. Not just what existed, but who existed, namely the triune Godhead with a special emphasis here on the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's look at the eternal glory of God the Son in verse 1. The very first phrase, in the beginning was the Word, the Lagos in the original language. Now, of course, our children in public schools are taught something very different. They are taught, no, 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 cosmologists and astrophysicists tell us that in the beginning was nothing, right? I was reading some of the prevailing literature. They tell us that there was a Big Bang, and they speak of the Big Bang Theory. It's the prevailing cosmological description of the development of the universe. According to this theory, space and time emerged together 13.799 billion years ago, and the universe has been expanding ever since. While the spatial size of the entire universe is unknown, the cosmic inflation in equation indicates that it must have a minimum diameter of 23 trillion light years, and it is possible to measure the size of the observable universe, which is approximately 93 billion light years in diameter at the present day. Boy, I'm so glad to know all of that. Another scientist says, the infant universe was initially so hot and dense that even elementary particles such as protons and neutrons could not exist. Instead, different types of matter, called matter-antimatter, collided together, creating pure energy. By the way, they never tell you where matter came from, right? He goes on to say, as the universe began to cool during the first few minutes, protons and neutrons began to form. Slowly, protons, neutrons, and electrons came together to form hydrogen and small amounts of helium. During the billions of years that followed, stars, planets, and galaxies formed to create the current universe. There you have it. Well, dear friends, may I give you a first-hand testimony of what was in the beginning. It's from the Spirit of God who was there. In the beginning was the Word, the Lagos, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that, verse 9, it says, the true light describes him as the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Boy, try teaching that to your children in public schools. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, Father full of grace and truth. No, 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 children, though, no, no. So you see, those are just ancient myths. In the beginning, there was nothing, and out of nothing came everything. In the beginning, God tells us, was the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. This is the key to unlock all of the mysteries of the universe. In the beginning was a supernatural, supernatural, rational, logical being that made order out of chaos, ultimately to bring God glory. And this is why Jesus came to earth, to cause his creatures to worship him in breathless adoration. No wonder Satan tries so hard to prevent all of this and distort all of this. Dear Christian, please understand 
the vastness and the splendor of the universe pales in comparison to the glory of the incarnation of Christ. You see, all of creation is, 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 is like the, the, the moon that reflects the light of the sun. In the beginning was the word. Now, it's curious, why word? Why, why didn't he say in the beginning was Jesus? Well, we know, first of all, it refers to Jesus because of verse 14, as I mentioned, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and so forth. So why use logos? Why use word? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, the philosophers of that day used that Greek term logos to represent what they believed to be the non-personal supernatural force that was the source of the universe and the principle that held it all together, or in other words, the energy that held it all together. And by the way, if you ever watched the Star Wars movie, The Force Will Be With You, that's where all of that silliness comes from. That's what they believed. And the ancient Stoics believed that the universe is controlled by logos in the sense of reason or law. There are laws of physics. And they also held to a form of pantheistic materialism in which the universe is linked with God and was permeated and controlled by a fiery vapor substance which was also called logos. So, Spirit of God knew that that's what's going on in the minds of these ancient people. Later, Logos was used to define the divine reason, which the ancients believed governed the world. And they even mixed it with uh, popular Greek uh, mythology and allegorized the gods of popular religion and made them to be uh, personifications of, of these abstract ideas. For example, um, one of the mythical gods of the Greeks was, was Hermes, and he was interpreted as Logos. He was also, by the way, uh, the patron god of, of flocks. He was considered to be a shepherd. Um, there's a 5th century B.C. Um, statue of, of Hermes with a sheep over his shoulders as the great shepherd. So you see how the enemy is constantly trying to counterfeit the person and the work of Christ. By the time of the first century, even Judaism had been influenced by the Stoic philosophy, and during that time we see the personification of such divine attributes as wisdom, which was also called the Word, the Logos. And the Hellenistic Jews personified um, both wisdom and word and regarded them as the divine agents in creation. In fact, Philo taught that the Logos was both, quote, pattern and instrument of God in creation. So all of this, you see, is indicative of, of philosophical reasoning and the evolution of philosophical reasoning, the musings of man that God calls foolishness. Man's reasoning will always lead him away from God never to him. It's for this reason, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And what is the message preached? It is the message of the gospel. 
So the Spirit of God knew all of this and inspired John to pen the perfect word to describe the Lord Jesus Christ, the Logos. Logos is a person, not some invisible, abstract, non-personal force, as Satan would have you believe. I believe there's also a second reason why the term Logos is used, and that's because God was created or God has created us to be able to, to comprehend and speak language. Language consists of words, expressions of thought. And John will reveal to us that the Son of God is the Word of God. And he reveals the very mind and the heart of God. In John 1, verse 18, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten of God, who is, the bosom, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. The divine Logos has explained him. Chapter 14, verse 24, The word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Chapter 15, verse 15, All things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Uh, Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. But the concept of Logos was not exclusive just to the Greeks. You see, the Jews also understood that the word of the Lord was the source of divine truth. It was the source of divine power. Genesis 15.1, we read how the word of the Lord came to Abram. And there he, he promised uh, the, his son to come and the Abrahamic covenant and so forth. Exodus 24, we read, the words of the Lord came to all of the people. And there is a context is the reaffirmation of their covenant with God to obey his commandments. We see this repeatedly in the Old Testament. So, back to our text. John begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. In other words, in the beginning, before anything was ever created, a personal God with a personality existed. The one who is the source and revelation of truth and wisdom. Now, in the beginning. Well, when was that? <laughs> it's kind of a good question, isn't it? Obviously, it's in the beginning, but Genesis 1.1 says that in the beginning... God created something. He created the heavens and the earth. And so the Word, this personal God who is the source of revelation and truth and wisdom, already existed at creation. Think about that. This means that the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the Father and the Son, pre-existed. Jesus pre-existed with God. He preceded all that exists in the universe. Therefore, catch this, he cannot be a created being, as the cults would have us believe. And notice as well, in the beginning was the word. Was, the imperfect tense of the verb to be, a me in Greek, which denotes continuous action. So what he's saying here is the Logos was continually existing in the beginning when everything else came into existence. And this verb to be, uh, translated was here in this text, has profound implications. We know that Jesus used it as the title to describe himself in the New Testament. For example, in John eight fifty eight. 
he tells the unbelieving Jews, before Abraham was born, I am. There he uses the same concept. He refers to himself in the present continuous tense. Why? Because that seems pretty odd. He's saying that I have always existed and I will always exist. And so in the title of God that the Lord uses of himself, we see his self-existence. There's never been a time when he didn't exist. You will remember Moses asked, what shall I tell the people? When they asked me, well, what's his name? In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, I am the self-existent eternal one who has been and will always be. And Jesus repeatedly used this title in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true and the living way. I am the true vine. So in verse 1, in the beginning was, there again, there's the imperfect tense of the verb to be, from which we get I am. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, the great I am, in other words, was already in existence. Because there has never been a time in which he did not exist. We go on in verse 1. And the word was with God. Kahalagos and prostan theon in the Greek. The word was God. I, can this be stated any more clearly? And the word was God. You know, the Greek is far more expressive and informative than the English translation. The, the, the phrase here, prostan theon, expresses the idea of being face-to-face, -face, of moving towards and being face-to-face. -face. So the phrase pictures here the three eternal beings in the triune Godhead, the Word, God the Son, the Father, God the Father, obviously, and the Holy Spirit facing each other, enjoying mutual, meaningful relationship and communion with one another. And this concept is repeated again in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Once again, dear friends, affirming that the word preexisted with God at creation. Re remember this, the next time you see little baby Jesus in a manger. Remember now who he is. And remember this the next time you see him hanging on a cross, dying on your behalf. And remember this when you see the empty tomb. But lest we errantly assume that the word was something less than God, as the cultists believe, notice at the end of verse 1 again, and the word was God, but then he, at, at this point, he's speaking now of the eternal deity of God the Son. We've seen the eternal glory of God the Son, now secondly, the eternal deity of God the Son, and the word was God. I mean, how can people miss this? I mean, you've got to want to miss this. This is the clearest declaration in all of Scripture of the deity of Christ. It's not, and the Word was a God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, and many other heretics will, will insist. I mean, such a, such a blatant misinterpretation betrays their lack of understanding of Greek grammar and mo the most basic principles of hermeneutics. 
All through Scripture we read that Jesus Christ is the second member of the Trinity, possessing all of the divine excellencies of God. And in these, he is co-equal, and he is consubstantial, and he is, he is well, as well as co-eternal with the Father. And anyone that denies the deity of Christ, once again, and his full equality with the Father is a heretic. John 10, verse 1, I and the Father are one. That's pretty clear. Chapter 14, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. What did Thomas say in his confession in John 20 and verse 30? My Lord and a God. No, he didn't say that, did he? My Lord and my God. So again, we read, and the Word was God. In other words, Jesus pre-existed and co-existed with God in the beginning as the eternally pre-existent Word who now enjoys, as he did then, face-to-face communion with the divine life and the divine life with the Father and with the Spirit. And it means that he is indeed God himself. So here John weaves together this intimate fellowship among the members of the triune Godhead that existed in eternity past. In fact, we see this truth concerning the eternal presence of the Son just with the Father even before the incarnation in the Lord's Prayer in John 17, 5, where Jesus said, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And again in verse 24, Thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Absolutely astounding. Beloved, we must be careful to resist this, this dangerous temptation to somehow remove the distinctions between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and yet also guard ourselves against saying that they are not one in essence, even though it's beyond anything that we can understand here on earth. Indeed, there is one true God. He is an all-knowing, infinite spirit. He is perfect in all of his attributes. He is one in essence existing in three persons which equally deserve worship, equally deserve obedience. Think about this. God the Father, we know from Scripture, is the creator who orders and disposes all things according to the purpose and counsel of his will, according to his grace. We know that he is the one who has graciously chosen us from eternity past. He is the one that set his love upon us, the one who adopts us as his own and becomes our heavenly father when we come to him through faith in Christ. And then there is God the Son, who is also the creator, who also possesses all of the divine excellencies of the Father. As we see in verse 2 of John 1, he was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that, was, that has come into being. And then we read, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So think about this. In the beginning, before anything was created, God the Son awaited the order of the Father to come to this earth 
in the incarnation to represent humanity and deity and the indivisible oneness of his being. There was no big bang that set everything into motion. He awaited the command to come forth to this earth to shed his blood on behalf of all that the Father had given him. And on the cross, he became the, the voluntary, vicarious propitiation for our sins, our Redeemer, our Savior, our substitute. And even to this day, he is the only mediator between God and man. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the, the, the coming universal king who will reign on the throne of David. He is the one who will judge heaven and earth, and on and on it goes. But then God the Spirit is also a part of all of that, who also possesses all of the attributes of deity. His sovereign activity was also at the beginning. That's how he could be the eyewitness to all of this and communicate this to us. He was there at creation. You remember in Genesis 1 and verse 2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And beloved, he was also at work in the incarnation. We read it a little bit earlier. The Spirit of God comes to Mary and, say, and says, you're going to conceive and you're going to bear a child. She says, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. And in Luke one thirty-five, he says to her, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And beloved, we see his creative work in our own lives, do we not? He's the one that created us in our mother's womb. Psalm 139. Furthermore, he is the supernatural. Now catch this. He is the supernatural and sovereign agent in regeneration. He is the one that causes us to be born again. John 6, 63, we read, For it is the Spirit who gives life. In fact, Paul compares regeneration to God's creation of the world in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, Light shall come out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Beloved, think of this. The only one who is able to recreate us is the one who created us in the first place. What an amazing thought. We know that it is the Spirit of God that was sent into this world to convict the world of of sin and righteousness and judgment, Jesus said in John 16. It is the Spirit who baptizes all believers into the body of Christ. He is the one who, who indwells and sanctifies and instructs and, and empowers us for service. He is the one that seals us until the day of redemption. Oh, dear Christian, all of this was set in place before creation. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And to think our precious Savior left the sanctuary of heaven to suffer and die, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to a holy God. So we've seen the eternal glory of God the Son, the eternal deity of God the Son, and finally, the eternal self-existence of God the Son. And this is logical. Think about it. If he is pre-existent and co-existent with God, he must therefore be self-existent. 
And this is proven here in verse 3. We read that all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. I mean, folks, you cannot be the creator of all things unless you are self-existent, right? An uncreated being. So here's where John is going with all of this. And as I tie it into the Christmas story, think of it this way. The Lord Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate, whose incarnation we celebrate, was and is the pre-existent, self-existent, eternally existent, uncreated creator of the universe. That's who he is. And that's what Satan doesn't want you to believe. It is stated both positively from the viewpoint of the past. He says all things came into being by him. And then negatively from the viewpoint of the present. Apart from him, nothing. In other words, literally in the Greek, not one single thing. All right? Not one single thing came into being that has come into being. So let me say it simply. Christ himself was not created He was eternally. He existed eternally. Again, the imperfect tense to express continuous action. It is used four times just in verses 1 and 2. So that we won't miss this. All things were created by him. Hebrews 1 and verse 2. In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, not for ourselves. He doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. And he says, one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, and we exist, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So in other words, everything comes from the Father. All believers exist for the Father, but everything is by the Son. And everyone who comes to the Father does so through the Son by the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit. We see this vividly in verse 4. In him was life. In other words, life existed continually in him. Jesus, dear friends, did not acquire life from another source. The divine word has always been in existence. But it gets better. Notice what he says here. And here's where the Greek is very helpful. The word life. The word life here is not bios in Greek. It's not speaking of biological life. It's not speaking of material life, that of flesh and blood, which is certainly a form of life. But, but a much lower form of life than what, what is being stated here. Life here is zoe. Zoe, spiritual life. The, this mystical reality of being. Not life as an organic, biological thing. Not merely DNA. But rather, he's speaking of this principle of existence, this principle of reality that exists beyond the realm of, of organisms as we know it, as, as exceedingly complex as they are. Indeed, he is, Jesus is the source of biological life, but God is not 
physical in any way. He is spirit. So here, the inspired author is speaking of the infinitely more complex existence. Life that exists within the realm of the spiritual. The supernatural realm like that of the angels. This is, dear friends, a life principle that will exist eternally even after the biological uh, material form of life dies. This is staggering. And beloved, I have to stop. This is the Jesus that I worship. I hope this is the Jesus that you worship. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the what? There it is. We exist by him and through him. You remember when Paul spoke to the men of Athens who worshipped the unknown God in ignorance? Remember that story in Acts 17? He speaks of God as the Lord of heaven and earth, and he says that they should grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And then he says this, For in him we live and move and exist. Jesus prepared himself for the cross. He prayed to the Father in John 17. In verse 13, he says, But now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. In other words, he wants the love wherewith the Father has loved him. For He wants that same kind of love to be experienced, to be felt in us not merely lavished upon us, but be felt within us. And then he says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. There's the triunity of God. So that the world may believe that you sent me. He went on to say, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Beloved, this is what Christmas is all about. I cannot fathom such love, such a magnificent plan for God to bring glory to himself. Yet he has done this by giving us life, more than just physical life, but spiritual life. John goes on in verse 4, it says, And the life was, meaning it, it continuously, it, it has eternally existed, the life was the light of men. And of course, when life is manifested, it shines forth as light. That's the idea. And Christ is the source, dear friends. He is the embodiment of spiritual life. You will have no life worth living on this earth apart from Christ. You will live you will enjoy a few things, you will eventually get sick, and you will die and go to hell apart from Christ. Christ is the source. He is the embodiment of life. That's what we're seeing here. Life and light emanate from him in the fullness of his essence, all of his glorious attributes. But when, when his life was manifested, think about this, when, when his spiritual life materialized, we saw it blaze forth in that dazzling, ineffable light of the Shekinah. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when he peels back his flesh and all of a sudden 
the light comes forth. In John's gospel, you must understand that, that life and light cannot be separated. In that light is the manifestation of life. And, and both are of the same essence, even as God is not separate from the word, from the divine logos. In John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light, here it is, the light of what? The light of life. We've seen the, the same parallel in the Old Testament, Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In other words, it's by God's sovereign grace alone that he raises us as spiritual cadavers by breathing life into these, these lifeless corpses. And when he does so, what do we see? We see the light of Christ. What do we emanate? The light of Christ. The light of wisdom, holiness, and truth, and salvation. You see, folks, at Christmas, we see Christ. The world sees Santa, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, some goofy elf, and on and on it goes. It's pitiful, isn't it? But I must say, were it not for God's grace, I would be right there with them, and so would you. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, meaning it did not overcome it. There's no opposing power that is capable of seizing the light and hindering its radiance. The Lord Jesus Christ, you will recall, entered into Satan's um, domain of darkness, darkness in, this, in this wicked world when he came as a babe. But this present darkness is unable to extinguish the light of his life. Moreover, it cannot extinguish the light of the life of those who have found life in him by his grace. Colossians 1.13, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. 1 John 2 and verse 8, because the divine word came into the world, because Jesus came to earth, we read that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What a great verse. Oh, what life, what hope we have in Christ. Some of you may be in a dark place right now, wondering if your Savior is sufficient. First of all, I hope you know your Savior. I hope he is your Savior. But I can tell you he is sufficient. Today you have seen the light of Christ and what has been presented to you. And John 1 and verse 12, we read that as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So I challenge you, dear friends, this Christmas as you look at nativity scenes or whatever you see all around you, I hope that you will Use your eyes of faith and look beyond what is material. Look beyond what is temporal and see what is eternal. See the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Christ. And when you do this, you will behold Christ in all of his glory, the Father in all of his glory, the Spirit 
in all of his glory. And I might say that when this truly grips your heart, you will never again be able to merely look at the mountains um, or the northern lights or the eyes of a newborn baby without seeing behind all of that the glory of the one who created it. I was reminded recently of a hymn we used to sing when I was a boy, Loved with Everlasting Love, written by James Mountain back in the 19th century. And there's a, there's a phrase there that, 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 that really struck me. He said in his lyrics, Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. But those of us who have been given the eyes to see, we see the glory of Christ. I close with a quote from a great Puritan, Francis Turretin. He lived from 1623 to 1687. I believe it's in your bulletin. He said this, He is blind who does not see the most beautiful order everywhere and most wicked who does not acknowledge it. There is a suitable disposition of parts so constant in concord of things, so discordant, so harmonious, and agreement and consent of creatures, the most diverse, so swift, and at the same time, equable, equable motion of the heavenly bodies, and so immutable a stability and constancy of the order once established. So not only do the heavens declare the glory of God, but every blade of grass and flower in the field, every pebble on the shore and every shell in the ocean proclaim not only his power and goodness, but also his manifold wisdom so near each one that even by feeling God can be found. So dear friends, may we all look beyond the temporal this Christmas season and behold the eternal See the glory of our triune Godhead being manifested in everything around us. And may our lives redound to his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. Impress upon us the magnitude of what we have examined here today. That our hearts might be animated to a deeper expression of worship and that our lives might manifest a more profound glory as people see Christ in us, the only hope of salvation. We thank you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.